Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Steve Mathiason on the show today of the Mathiason Family Winery. Hello, sir. How are you? Great. And you? I'm really good. It's nice to have you on the show. I'm enjoying the snow in New York. It's a different thing, huh? Oh, it's, you know, for me, it's a treat. I wish we had a little bit our way. Bit of a drought. A little bit. A little bit. How's that affecting you in 2014? Um, It is scary. Um, You know, when, when they were saying it was the driest year in recorded history, that's a little freaky. That'll get your attention. Now with tree rings, they're thinking it might be the driest year in the last like four or five hundred years. Um, and so this is this is uncharted. I don't know what we're going to do. I, this is, I have no idea. I mean, we're going to have a crop this year, or or um, you know, what's going to happen to the to the economy? You know, ag is still the biggest economy in California, bigger than tech. And and then of course, in, in you know, water is so politicized. I mean, this is this is huge. This is um, this is one of those ones where, on the one hand, I'm just scared, on the other hand, I'm fascinated. You know, I mean, watching this thing unfold and just just you know, it's a little different. I mean, this could if we don't get rain, this could be our Hurricane Sandy, but that happened so suddenly, and then it was all the aftermath. Whereas here, it's this it's this slow build, and you're just watching, going, you know. Every day, another dry day, and it just kind of just getting worse and worse, and just kind of wondering, you know, it could rain tomorrow, or it could not be another year. And so, how do we plan for it? How bad is it going to get? It's just, um, you know, farming is so much about playing the hand that you're dealt, and that's part of the that's the fun of it is you're you're dealt this hand of cards, and you just, you know, okay, you know, got lots of rain or not a lot of rain, or hailed on us, or it's cold or it's hot or what have you, and then you're and you're um, or you get some infestation of bugs or diseases or something, and and you're um so you're making your way through it, and um and and you know it's a big game and it's fun, and and I usually find that not stressful. Like you know, stressful is are you going to get paid or can you find someone to buy the wine? But Mother Nature, you have no control, and that's part of the joy of farming is is dealing with this um you know Mother Nature just every day. Okay, I'm going to just change it all up again, and now you have to as a farmer readjust. But this one is, so there's that fun and excitement. And then also like, is this, I mean, if it, it could be, I mean, is it going to put us out of business? I mean, how bad is this going to be? So, so it's, it's really odd time right now. 
Have you seen some people coping in different ways? Because you work with a lot of different wineries. Yeah, people are, I mean, a lot of, there's only so many things we can do right now because this is the dormant season or pruning or just sort of, so it's a lot of sitting around going, well, if it doesn't rain, what are we going to do? It's not so much, you know, but um, we're, you know, people are, I mean, drilling wells as fast as they can. Um, getting crop insurance. We got crop insurance for the, you know, we've never had crop insurance before, but we went and bought crop insurance. And he did it right to the deadline. Was, yeah. Yeah. You, you weren't, you were, you didn't want to do it probably. No, I mean, it's, like like it's expensive it. and, and, um, but you know, he's just watching the forecast and saying, okay, forget it. We just, you know, we have to, and, and it ensures the value of the grapes. We're selling wine, not grapes. So it's, so it's not even, it wouldn't even, and then you have lost market share and lost being out there in the, in the world. And so, uh, there's no way you can monetize that, but at least it would, if you know, it'll get some money to sort of keep the doors open, basically. And so, um, which is, you know, it's you know, it's a federally insured program. So the idea is it's not supposed to be a payday. It's just supposed to keep you going. And so, um, so we decided, yeah, we need to do it. Because this would seem to be a period of time when California is resurgent again, at least in the East Coast market. Is this going to perhaps be a real stumbling block to, you know, people... Once again, featuring the wines, just because there is no wine. It could be a, yeah, a situation where we just don't have a whole lot of wine to sell. I mean, you know, there were a couple of years there we had light crops. Nine, ten, and eleven were light crops. Twelve and thirteen are big crops, but those haven't really hit the market as much yet. You know, it's hard for me to say because you, you know the the larger wineries are looking at spreadsheets probably have a lot of concern about that, and you know slots at Safeway and that sort of thing. In our world, it's you know I'm probably less concerned. It's um, more concerned about just how just are we gonna are we gonna be able to have wine to sell, but we'll make something, and it's not gonna affect all vineyards. And some vineyards have good water to irrigate with, you know, good groundwater supplies, etc. But so we'll still have good wine, and the still will be wine. We being California, but um, I mean this again. If we don't, it's, this is this rain is serious in the sense that it's. I mean, California still produces most of the produce in the country, and so if we don't. You know, I, I mean, is when it, I don't know how that's going to affect food prices. I mean, the economy. It's um, it's, so it's bigger than sort of the California, New California wine scene. That's for sure, and that's what's why you know it's so fascinating about this thing. Kind of, you kind of, it's one of those moments where you go, it can't really be that bad, can it? And maybe, and, and it could have just start raining tomorrow, and this whole thing is like, you know, oh, we were just a bunch of chicken little people, and what were we worrying about? Kind of like the um you know, with the bailout with the economy a few years ago now, it's like, you know, we, in the one sense, we narrowly averted disaster, but then, you know, all the Monday quarterbacks were like, oh, it was no big deal. Well, we'll never know what it have been or wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have been. And that's, so. The vines are dormant now, so you don't need that much water for them, but what's it like to live with no water coming in? I mean, does that change how you cook, how you wash your hands, how you wash your car or? What's the reality of living with that? So that's part of of California. I mean, Steinbeck would write about the the drought and rain cycles that we have, and so people that lived there long enough remember previous droughts where they weren't allowed to water their lawn, or they had to, you know, the little switches in your shower that you know fit in that you can turn you know, use soap up, turn the water off, and then turn it back on to rinse the soap off that sort of thing instead of letting it run. So that's part of the you know a low flush toilet. So that's part of living in California. For us living rural in a rural property with a well that is pooped out on us, and we had to run a pipe over ground to our neighbor who was generous enough to let us tap into their well, 
that's weird. You know, it, it's, you know, the, the one of the um, fun things about living in a rural property is you are closer to your food. You know, you, you raise a sheep, you raise a garden, and you and so it, it, you you get this mindfulness of where, of sort of a little bit more of the fragility of life and 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 where food comes from. You know, uh, I thought we were going to have broccoli, but a gopher just took it all out yesterday. But we, you know, we're obviously we're well, not obviously, I guess, but we're on the grid. We have power and we have a well, and so, but you know, a couple of generations back, all of us. Everyone, you know, they're we're carrying buckets of water and lighting lanterns, and so um, so it's. I mean, it's a, I think it's a, for our kids. It's a really interesting experience. Saying, "Hey, you can only take a thirty minute or a thirty second shower because we're on our neighbor's well." You know, I mean, you know, taking these things for granted. It's a, it's such a blip in our history as people. We can take these these basic amenities for granted. Right now, I'm looking at it as is as it's interesting. This is this is part of the raw experience that we signed up for being rural. But I just hope it doesn't get a whole lot worse. Are there climactic changes beyond just the fact that it's dry? Are there dust storms? Are there? Um, not yet. Not yet. Are we going to see in the future, perhaps, if this were to happen on a more regular cycle, vineyards being haves and have-nots in terms of who has access to water? Definitely. It's part of California. It's part of the history of California. It's part of the history of the Central Valley of California it's always been haves and have-nots. I mean, look at, if you watch Chinatown, I mean, you know, they took the water away from the Owens Valley, was a vibrant farming community, now it's not. So that's that's the history of the state. Because when I lived there, we used to talk a lot about Mono Lake. Yeah. And there was a history of waters being taken away from rural communities to, to feed cities, yep. essentially. Yep. And, you know, ag is still the main user of water, and the boats are still in the cities. And... You know, the truth is the cities could do more to conserve and ag could do more to conserve. Um, and, you know, so, I mean, the, the nice thing is that California, I mean, we have the regulatory process. We already, you know, they're already kind of tuned into um, dealing with it. And so they'll start enforcing austerity and it'll be, there's enough voices that it'll be fair for the most part. Have you seen a difference with your clients in terms of how they plan irrigation? Yeah, and we've been, I mean, this is something that I've been working on for years now, is when we plant a new vineyard, we're using drought-tolerant rootstocks, we're, we're prepping the ground to have deeper rooting. You know, there is a, there is, there is a sort of, I mean, just without this drought, you just look at population and climate change, and you have to set up a vineyard to be able to um, withstand drought and just use less water. It's, just, it's a part of not just sustainability, but just being business. And so... And, and there, the viticultural strategy had been, in let's say the last 15, 20 years, with using low vigor rootstocks, tight spacing, shallow soil preparation, all these things to restrict vigor. And then they, the vines demanded more water, more frequent water. And so, and, and that is sort of like part of the, of the um, formula for a high quality vineyard. And so we've, the last few years, at least, it's been my attitude as clients has been we're going to forget all of that and we're going to deep prepping deep rooted rootstocks we'll worry about vigor other ways we can plant um we can plant native grasses that are deeply rooted in between the vines that'll really restrict vigor Uh, and and i kind of think a little and 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 having a little bit more production can reduce vigor and it's also more sustainable for a whole lot of reasons to have more production per acre you know your inputs per acre are constant let's say you're driving through there with a tractor 
it doesn't matter if you're organic, you're still driving through there with a tractor using diesel, using sulfur, whatever you're going to spray, et cetera. So the sustainable thing is to have higher crop. Have more yields. Have more yields. So, so because, because that, that unit of land that's been taken out of a forest setting and used for grapes should produce, it's there to make wine. Otherwise, let it go back to, to being a forest. And so, it's, so the more wine you get from that land, the least, less land we need and, and the less inputs are required because those usually go on a per acre basis. But there was a couple decades, especially with Napa, where you're based, where there seemed to be an emphasis on lower yield. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of a uh, winemaking dogma in a lot of the world that lower yield equals better wines. And so, and it does yield in many cases, not all cases, more concentrated wines, although you get to a point where you'll lose concentration again because the vine is so vegetatively vigorous because it doesn't have that break of having a crop on it. But I really think it's a big, like, it's this puritanical thing where where you achieve greatness through suffering, and so by sacrificing my fruit, I will. I'm. You're almost like giving back to God in a way. It's yeah. almost like the sacrifice to give, you know, like yeah. Cain and Abel style. Like exactly. I'm going to yeah. put the produce on it, the it, altar. It, this is in who we are culturally, and and so people, you know, they they want to make that sacrifice. But what if that? wine doesn't taste good to you. It seems to you, you like a higher yield wine because you like that texture of a wine. And right. you've made a decision that says, I don't like low yield wine in terms of how it tastes. Yeah, exactly. Is that true? Am it, I- is, it is true. The, um, I don't like the excessively concentrated wines. You know, they're, um, you know, um, one of my winemaking mentors is Warren Winiarski, and he has all these great metaphors. And he talks about um, wine being a, uh, overly concentrated wine is like, rather than watching the fireworks, it's like having the firework right in your ear. You know, all you, you, you all you, you, it's just a, you feel the sensation. You can't even, you know, see or hear anything. And so if you dial the concentration back, then you can actually make out the beginning and middle and end of the wine and hear the story. It's one of the things I love about Barolo, for example, is that, is that the wine is so transparent. It has plenty of power, but it's not um, gobbed up with this rich, thick, concentration in the mid palate so that you can you you get the pieces of it and that's part of the joy is experiencing those pieces sort of moving through your palate one after the other and you and you you know so it's transparent enough and they're separated enough that you can actually make out the pieces and and that and so there's this incredible intellectual stimulation with having that wine versus that much more visceral thing of just having a big fat wine you experience the power, but there's no story. And in a way, I feel like one of the other things you can experience is where it's from. Whereas if you take it to ultimate ripeness or chase that idea, sometimes what seems to go away is the signifiers of where it might be from. Right, right. Is that difficult in a market where there's always going to be someone that's warmer and drier than you somewhere in the world? We sort of made a conscious decision when we started making our wine that we were not going to worry about the market and we were going to make wines that that we believe in and want to drink and as a result we had a very difficult time selling our wines and um and that was an era where it was really all about concentration in so much of the wine world especially as a new world producer but even you know, the old you look at the style shift in the old world it has been so profound as well and um i mean there are barola that wouldn't match the description that you talked about yeah for exactly instance. And 
thankfully in places like Brolo and other places, I, it seems that the pendulum is swinging, is swinging back. And I think it's swinging back, you know, I think so. So I had a very interesting conversation with someone at the tasting yesterday. And she said, is this, is low alcohol wine a fad? And I, and I, First off, I don't think we're making low alcohol wine. It's, you know, we need to define what's low alcohol. I'm going to call low alcohol, let's say, 11s and below. To me, a 12.5 to 13.5% alcohol wine is absolutely not low alcohol. That's sure, a, there's plenty of German Riesling that's lighter, right? Yeah, it's a moderate alcohol wine. And, it's, it's, and, and, and there's so much historical precedent in so many wine regions in the world for that 12 and a half, 13 and a half percent alcohol. And, the, and then there, there are plenty of precedent for outliers, but, but they're outliers. And so, so that's number one. And the number two is we're talking about 10 to 15 years where alcohols have been above 14% routinely. And that's really the fad. That's, that's the fad, the fad right? It's not the change from that. It's, right. That was the fad. That's the fad. And so what we're seeing with the pendulum swing back is not a fad. We're seeing a, that fad fading. We're moving back to this really time-honored, you know, well-established in many different wine regions sense of what makes a balanced, classic wine. And um, and and I, I see threads. I see whether we're talking about Barolo or we're talking about Burgundy or we're talking about Rioja. I mean, or, or let's say the Rhone. Very, very different regions, and people, and, and the, the the flavor signatures are very different. But the concept of balance and the great examples of those wines, the time honored examples, I think you you find very similar balance in terms of the sense of the, the tannin and acidity and alcohol, and in the sense of the the aromatic balance. You know, balance ar, 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 aromatics are so important in balance. So you know, if you take you know. Black fruit, for example, is heavy. So, so identical chemistry, let's say acid, it's going to seem heavier and flabbier with black fruit than with red fruit, for example, or green characters, which would be the other extreme. And so that notion of balance, what is the individual red fruit? That I see that different in different regions, but the fact that red fruit is the core framed by black fruit, green fruit, savory characters, you see the repeated over and over. It's a classical concept. It might and, be cherries. It might be raspberries. Yeah, but it's that's a spectrum. Exactly, and so and so. There's no fad. I mean, that's it was worked out. It's, it plays into our physiology of taste and uh, and and how in you know food and there's a reason for the uh, you know these these classical traits that you see in in wines. There's a whole lot of in history, a lot of taboos about what enters and what leaves the body, right? Right. Are you drawn to taking in a certain kind of wine more than another kind of wine? You know, coming out of what you just said, is it is there some that you you just find more appealing to put inside of yourself than others? Yeah, yeah. At a more than just taste level, more than just like oh, I'm getting that fruit signature, but something more than that. Right. Well, so yeah, yes. There's a organic farmer in um, California, in Sonoma, named Bob Kennard, who who's one of the early organic farming movement people. You know, like when Chapinese first started, they were sourcing produce from Bob Kennard, and just a fascinating guy. And and um, and I heard him one time talking about he was talking he talked about he was talking about carrots, and he said and he talked about carrots have a sweetness. A good carrot is sweet, 
sweeter, you know, we like sweet carrots. And, but then he said there's a concept that he said, for lack of a better term, he was going to call it etheric sweetness. And that's the sweetness that you don't taste with your tongue. You, you taste with your body. And, and it's a sense that this food is, is nourishing me. And if you hear me, talking about nourishing body and soul. And, you know, I almost don't like going there because I'm a, very much an empiricist, but, but I understand what he's exactly what he's saying. Anyone who consumes in your body with any kind of attention, you understand that sometimes you just say, this belongs to my body. You know, fresh squeeze, you know, I'm not a big juicer or juice faster or anything, but you get a nice juice belongs in you and this etheric sweetness concept so you get you sometimes you get a wine and you just go this belongs in my body and and i wish i could put my finger on what it is but you know it when you have it and it's one of the things i prize the most in wine i'll put up with a lot of of um like maybe it doesn't i'm not crazy about the flavor or the tannins or the what have you but it just hits the spot in a certain way that feels like it belongs in my body and, and to me that's about the highest you can get with a wine so let's figure out how we got here you were born in winnipeg born in winnipeg and then your parents divorced and you moved to tucson right and what was that like that was uh quite the change yeah <laughs> so um probably one of the def- one of the defining moments of my life was moving down to tucson and um you know it's culturally very different obviously the climate I love the desert. I loved it immediately. And a raw landscape, Winnipeg in Canada is a raw landscape, it's prairie land. And so it's, but raw in a totally different way. And I love raw landscapes, and, you know, but, you know, it, very different. And so, you know, so, um, you know, that scent, that moving when you're a kid like that definitely puts you in the mind frame of um, being an observer. And, you know, you, you, it's, it, if you've grown up in the same place, it's a little easier to just sort of be in the moment as opposed to be, you know looking around and being anal- a- analytical and there's things you like there's things you don't like there's you know people that are cruel with people that are nice it's um and so it's it's definitely informed my approach to the world was that move no no question about it and you know so you know my participation in anything i do the wine you know winemaking or or what have you it's there's that little feeling of outsiderness that causes me to um that i just live with that causes me yeah, i just so it's just automatic for me to just kind of do my own thing. And when we look at that, you know, you're a skateboarding aficionado, punk music fan, bike messenger for a few years. I mean, those are all kinds of things that you think of, well, that guy's a little bit of a, an outlier kind of personality. Right. Is that too much to say or is that fair? No, I think that's fair. So what was what was Tucson like as a place? Um, it is a... Um, it's changed a lot. It was a like quarter the size as a kid, but it was. Um, but it still has a similar culture. It, you know, people go there to do their own thing. You know, and it's it's um the politically it's liberal, but it's sort of like this kind of like libertarian liberalism, if that makes sense. Like leave me alone, liberal. Yeah, leave me alone. We'd like to have the corporations regulated and kept away from us. And the rest of us will just kind of want to be left alone. And, you know, far Northern California, like Humboldt, is kind of a similar kind of mentality, although it's so different because you're surrounded by these really tall redwoods. It creates a different mind space than being in a wide open desert. But um, 
you know, that sense, you know, it, it again probably has informed my winemaking in a lot of different ways. One is, well, just the spare, rugged landscape. And sort of how I was describing Barolo, you, with the desert, you see the bones of the landscape, you see the rocks, you see the geology, you see there's incredibly diverse plant life. And you can see the complexity because there aren't a whole bunch of leaves in the way. You know, it's all laid out. It's so clean and open and infinitely complex and interesting. When did you move away from there? Uh, 18. Went to college. Where did you go to school? Whittier College. And what, what were you studying there? Philosophy. How did you get into that? Uh, interested in big questions. And um, the, reason, the reason I went there was because I was a crap student in high school. And they, my, my parents were both academics. And so it wasn't a question of, will you go to college? Because they were of the anthropological yeah. academic school. Yeah, they were both anthropologists. Which is especially and, the kind of intellectual family, usually. Yeah, right? yeah, pretty much. It was, yeah, and, and so dinner table conversations were usually, um, you know, they could be about all kinds of different things. It was, you know, a big part of my life was interesting dinner table conversations with my parents. If friends would come over, they were really interesting and so, um, so I usually get criticized for slouching a lot when I'm around anthropologists. They seem to think <laughs> yeah. I'm going back in time. You know, so <laughs> oh, there you go. I'm a big sloucher. You, yeah. you probably get that too as a tall well, guy. Yeah, I'm a big sloucher, but might, they were those are the physical anthropologists that would worry about that. Oh, okay. So this is cultural anthropology. <laughs> yeah, this is like Margaret to, Mead. Yeah, exactly. This is like why do people eat other people? Yeah, exactly. Like that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you go to school. You're studying philosophy, and who are you drawn to in that? Oh, in the in philosophy. Yeah. Plato, probably more than Aristotle. Um, modern philosophers, um, I was, I mean, Foucault. I, I want to say Derrida, but I'm scared they asked me a question about him because I didn't really understand him, but I, what yeah, I did yeah. understand, I liked. <laughs> but that, those are, you know, both idealists and outsiders, right? Yeah. In a way, yeah. those two groups. Yeah, exactly. And was there an engagement with farming earlier? Well, or? the engagement in that case was, um, was having a garden. So from early on, it was, I loved farms. When my parents getting divorced, they got shipped up to my cousin's farm. We pilgrimaged every day, summer without fail um, to the um, old family farmstead in North Dakota. And I just, I mean, that's what I love. That's where I felt like, was where I want, you know, that was the place of restoration, really. Like a feel, but it was always a longing because I couldn't be there. You know, I'm the, I'm the, the family member from the city going out and visiting and absolutely loving it, but but not my farm, not my place. And so, um, but I love plants. I mean, you know, so so there's that that sort of of um, unattainable. You wanted to have place a piece out. of that, though. Yeah, but and and but I didn't think that it was possible. And so it was just sort of the way it is, right? And so so just knowing that there, that what I would really love. It was you couldn't even conceptualize it to the to say, well, I'd love to do that, but I can't. Not if, I'm not a car guy, but as an analogy, let's say you're driving past a Ferrari dealership, an average person doesn't go, oh gee, I, I wish I had one of those. You just admire it because it's not an option. It's never going to be an option. So so you don't instead of think of it as this thing that I wish I could have, but I can't. It's more like that's just a cool looking car. Let me admire it while I have this chance to be actually seeing one in person. And that's kind of my, was my attitude to, to the farms. How did that change to get you to where you are now? So we got it out of my system gardening and 
totally into that. Totally got totally. So I was working as a, so I was out of school, moved to San Francisco, working as a bike messenger, um, going to the community. I had a plot in the community gardens. There's a really great community gardening program in San Francisco. And I was, um, you know, going to my garden every morning, loving it and zero career aspirations because not really anything I want to do, you know, brewing beer, making, cooking food. That was, you know, sort of my thing. Um, reading early, whatever books there were at that time on sort of the politics of food and a housemate had to go out to Davis for the day and, and, Hey, do you want to come along and check out Davis? Yeah. I, I go out there. I'm like, Holy crap. This is an entire university dedicated to ag. It was the original charter of it. And I, I didn't know that, that um, such a thing existed. My parents were academics and somehow I had had zero idea idea that there was i didn't know i'd never heard the term land grant in school i didn't know that there were ag schools that was you know almost i realized i need to you know look more into this again coming out of an academic family it was like i understood schools and i was like this is something this is actually i could actually they could teach me how to do ag. they could teach me how to do ag and i could find some job doing something in there and i found i saw there's a program in international agricultural development perfect i can um work overseas, they can learn a ton, hopefully help people. I was, you know, it's really into organics and I thought maybe we can, you know, do something, you know, with development projects that are, you know, um, um, help with sustainability. And then, and you don't spend any money overseas. I can save up and I can um, buy something here and maybe someplace cheap like Arkansas or something. How old were you? At that point, I was 23. How old are you now? 44. So about 20 years ago, you're not that far away from my mom. She was big on the kind of a back to the land idea. Was that a permeable idea at that time? Was that yeah, yeah. It was like that? basically of my friends at the time, it was, you know, we all kind of had this, you know, there, there, you'd, you'd talk and fantasize about like like a kind of a punk rock co-op-y kind of, you know, buy enough families, buy a piece of land and you kind of share and you, you know, grow veggies and play music and you know that was you know that was sort of this fantasy that we had you could be a little bit apart and it would be fair and people get along yeah yeah what was it like going to davis kid in a candy store i couldn't believe it i mean there's you know it's like a library as big as a town like public like not like a new york city public library but like a public library a normal public library just on viticulture and winemaking i mean floors and floors of stuff like every agricultural journal you could imagine the journal of maize breeding you know and there might be three journals of maize breeding and they have all of them you know the professors the labs the the, the farms on the campus i mean it, davis gets all this crap for being sort of um you know make, cranking out gmos and soulless winemakers and it's what you make out you know i mean you know we're, we're, we're you know this is an institution that has you know, for over a hundred years, been one of the centers of agricultural science in the world. And, you know, you don't have, you know, you can, if you want to learn how to do GMOs, it's, that's the place to go. But if you, but they have, you know, if you want to learn about um, organic insect management, that's the place to go. And they're doing cutting edge research on biological control of citrus scale at Davis. You know, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And so, I mean, I loved it there. And coming back, totally different experience than undergrad it was like 
on a mission, you know, and that's what I, I when I talk to adult, I really connect with a lot of adult students, and it's just a whole other mentality. They're ready. They they feel like that they, they want to get these done. They want yeah. the time is not for wasting. Yeah, exactly. Did you have any teachers that really influenced you during that period of time? Yeah, let's see. Um, Andy Walker, the viticulture department. Jim Rumsey in in agricultural engineering was um, great on practicality. You know, his classes were field equipment operation and field equipment maintenance, which is basically tractor driving and welding. And um, I mean, Bill Liebhart was the sustainable ag program director. You know, it had, um, man, goes on and on the, in the pomology department. You know, um, Doug Goobler is the world famous plant pathologist. He's done tons of work on powdery mildew. And, you know, he was great. Still staying in good touch with him. He was like knighted, or you know, by the French government for his work on powdery mildew. It's pretty, you know, big thing on his wall. It's kind of cool. I was given powdery uh, mildew by the French government, so it's somewhat similar. Yeah, they, they awarded it to me. It's it's hard to keep in one place, but you know. So I show up on the first day, and, and my advisor, Bill Leapard, he was it was his first year there. He come from the Rodale Institute. He's um, he's like, what do you want to get out of Davis? Well, I want to learn how to farm. That's what you said. That's what I said. I want to learn how to farm, and he says. Well, you're not going to learn that here. You need to go work on a farm, which was obvious, but not hadn't for some reason hadn't occurred to me. And so, got an internship with. Um, I managed to find this internship with this consulting company down in Merced. So I took a leave from Davis. So I was, did an internship with a consulting company down in Merced, Modesto. It's like you know, jug wine country, and just had an outrageous summer of education in in the practicalities and complexities of California and oper- and possibilities of California agriculture. Was it vines or was it something? Vines and, and um, fruit and nut trees. I see. And so um, my, um, that's how I met my wife because she was working, this internship was with a program she had gotten the grant for it. She was working for a family farming organization. So it was like called Community Alliance with Family Farmers or sort of Save Family Farmers. She And so... Um, so she was already working there. She's a little older, and she had, was sort of, you know, a absolute dyed in the wool sort of liberal, save family farms and get healthy food to kids and families. And that was kind of like her. It still is, you know, sort of what gets her up in the morning. Only now, big part of it is working on her own family farm. And so um, that was, you know, went back to Davis that fall, and it was like now I have a focus. Now that was the realization that there, there you can have a career in ag, focusing on helping growers use less pesticides, and they'll pay you for that, and you can be on farms and do good work. And so, um, you know, I was that that was you know that was all lined up at that point. And so that was the question: just learn the stuff and do it. What is the stuff? What is what are the hallmarks of an agricultural consultant? And what are you really focused on? Walking through the fields, we call it monitoring is the term, looking for pests, looking for beneficial insects. You know, we do, there's a lot of, it's very data oriented. You have specific sort of sampling that you do, certain number of leaves and you look at them under a hand lens and look for, um, you know, count the number of mites on the leaves, that sort of thing. We take leaf samples and send them into the labs and have them analyzed for, for um, um, nutrients, you know, whether potassium levels or phosphorus levels, what have you, um, soil samples. Just um, looking for diseases, just hunting through the vineyard, looking for th- the diseases, and then you know, working with the growers to um, implement a strategy. So, you know, the easy thing is, well, was go spray. But you know, but if you 
you know, so the this integrated pest management is the term, and what that really means is that the, 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 the it was very carefully thought out term. So integrated is means you're integrating various management strategies, not just the use of pesticides. And management, the management part of integrated pest management is it's not. It used to be called pest control. And if you anytime you see pest control, that's old school fifties because the idea is that you can't control pests. This is mother nature. You can't control. You need to get out, out. Don't even think that you're controlling. You're managing the best you can using the tools that you have. And so, so rather than say, "Eeks, these plants have mites. I'm going to spray." We have this. This the term is called an economic threshold. How many mites can you can the can the vine handle before it causes an economic problem? If it's if it's not an economic problem, then it's not. Then we just leave it alone. And so 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 you. The service you're, one of the services you're providing is you're monitoring on a regular basis. You go every week, look at the mite population, write it down. Is it climbing? Is it holding steady? Is it going down? Um, look at the beneficial population. Is that climbing? Okay, the mites are staying steady. The beneficials are climbing. We're probably going to be out of the woods. Shoot, it's been four weeks. There's still no sign of beneficials, and the mite population has been climbing every single week. It's getting to the point where any higher, we're going to suffer losses. We need to go spray. Or we're going to release beneficial, you know, we're going to buy predatory mites from a company that rears them and we're going to release them and see, and monitor that for a couple of weeks and see how that does. So, you know, or we're going to try, let's try spraying an oil, a very environmentally friendly organic spray and check it another week or two and see, did that work? Great. Darn, didn't work. Now we're going to have to roll out the big guns, and so that's that's integrated pest management, and that's and so so doing so that type of observation and record keeping and decision making and communication with the grower and on all of the things that they're facing, and so and then all of your growers are making the rounds, hitting the vineyard every single week, all you know, just driving around, walk the next one, get back in your car, check out the next one, and that's sort of what the trade of consulting that I learned. Is there a difference between working with orchards and working with vines? On that sense, no other than the different crops, different pests. And then, you know, so what evolved over time was that was a trade that I learned, and it's a trade. But, uh, you know, you stop and you chat with the farmer at every single stop. And in Central Valley, it's still farmers. And the Napa and Sonoma, Sonoma more so than Napa, the, it's, it's, it's very different. There's so much money in grapes, and it's so intensive. And it's really, it's more of a, you know, it's management companies, it's very top down. It's, you know, you don't have like a guy in bib overalls working on his tractor that owns the place. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's much more complex and people have different roles. And so it's, um, I really miss the community feel of the farmers, but that was in the, in the central Valley, but the, um, although there's a lot of corporate ag in the central Valley as well, the farmers are unfortunately a dying breed everywhere, the old family farming concept, but the, um, but I learned from those guys and then in the course of the career, the consulting now is very is it's more what I find in Napa is you find situations where rather than a farmer who's, who's been doing it his whole life and learned from his father, et cetera, it's men and women, not just he, who didn't grow up in it, and or maybe it's a winemaker who is, finds her and herself in charge of the vineyard, and and they need help on strategy and fundamentals. You know, they, they see like the whole picture, but it's, but there isn't necessarily experience in all of the little things that could go wrong or preventing things that go wrong or trying to make little changes that'll change the character of the wine. And so it's, 
it's it's more um, sharing with them the how we're going to do anything out there. You know, let's let's prune a little differently in here versus there. Let me tell you about what I saw the last time we had weather like this on this other place, or you know that sort of thing. And we try to like craft strategy each visit so that they can um, do a good job farming. Basically, sounds like a lot of driving. A lot of driving. A lot of driving. And I'm 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 addicted to it though. I mean, it's it's so interesting to see these different vineyards. And and see them all change and different you know mountaintop stuff stuff down by the water stuff you know inland and different soils <clears throat> different varieties management and you know so it's that's incredibly stimulating and it's a little bit of playing God a little bit with the vineyards you know let's prune or fertilize or what have you this vineyard differently and then and then you watch it over the next year and see the the what the change did. And so you're, you know, so I, each of these vineyards I'm going around to, <clears throat> I'm trying things and watching how it comes out. And it's just fascinating. You worked in Lodi for a little bit. Yeah. You were working in uh, terms of sustainable agriculture. You set down a pl- template that became a template for a lot of different regions. It was kind of ahead of its time. What was that like? It was great. There's a guy, um, Cliff Omart, that um, also came out of this integrated pest management consulting you know world and lodi the growers in lodi when they started the wine grape commission sort of had this vision that they would they they had a lot of pride in lodi and they really wanted to see lodi um get the recognition that they felt it deserved and part of their definition of getting recognition is getting a better price for their grapes they've always felt that sort of they were the little you know it's going into jug wine and they felt that they were elevating the blends for the jug wine and they and and so somehow they decided in the early 90s that part of what they would do as a region would be to focus on sustainability and that would be that would um be part of how they sort of tell their story and differentiate themselves. And I I really I mean that was so far ahead of their time. I really don't know how how um, that came about, but um I mean it would be, be interesting to do a little study on sort of group study of how this group decided they wanted to do sustainable ag. These are hard-bitten professional farmers you know like these stereotype big trucks vote republican you know but yeah they had this vision of, of being more sustainable as a group and they uh hired cliff omar to run this program and then cliff had this vision well w- these guys want to be sustainable and they need help figuring out how they can be sustainable because it's a great word, but if you, but you know, how are they going to, what are they, what are you going to, I mean, what is, what the hell, are you going to just put compost out? Oh, now I'm sustainable. I mean, you know, where do you start? How do you, so they, he's like, they need a, a tool to analyze their operations and, and see the areas where they can start improving. And so, you know, we were already having speakers and all this kind of stuff. So they hired, so the Cliff got a grant and hired me. And I was working for Four Seasons Ag Consulting, doing all the, you know, all the field work I was describing. And so hired me to come and, and sort of put this workbook together. And we had this model of a potato workbook that had been done up in Wisconsin. And so you have, you know, sections on nutrient management because that's an environmental issue. Fertilizer production is energy intensive. You have problems with it leaching into the groundwater or running off into streams and rivers, et cetera. You hear about all the problems having in like in the Mississippi flushing all the nutrients and getting the die-offs down in the, you know, Gulf of Mexico. We have that same situation at a smaller scale in California. So... 
So your nutrient, you have insect management, you have human resources, which is something that's not addressed in organics at all, but is really important part of farming that you have all these farm workers that are essentially, you know, peasants. And, you know, it being illegal, they don't have a voice or a whole lot of rights. And so, so that needs to be addressed as part of sustainability. You know, I mean, I mean, that's such a huge issue. And um, it just goes on in wildlife habitat. So, so we had this, put this book together and we, um, and you had, we, you know, we tried to, we had this template. We just tried to, had this great committees. You know, these are like, had top wildlife people helping with the wildlife section, human resources people. I didn't know anything about human. I still don't know a whole lot about human resources, but helping with the human resources section, et cetera. And we put this book together and um, sat down over the next year with 200 farmers in their houses or barns, shops, whatever, going through this book. It was, you take about four hours to go through the book and evaluate, answer every question. There were questions like, do you, you know, um, monitor before irrigating and irrigate only at night to reduce evaporation or do you irrigate or A, or do you irrigate only at night B, but don't monitor or C, do you, you know, just water when you feel like it, let's say, I don't know, and then, then C, well, you know, get enough questions like that and C, you need to work on your, on irrigation. And so, you know, so then they can do action plans. And so 200 farmers, it was, that was just an incredible experience of sitting there and listening, there were little groups of two or three. So listening to them talk and I talk about these questions and what they could do and what's realistic, not realistic, et cetera. And so um, finished that up after, that was two years. And then that program sort of was done. And so then I moved to, to um, R.H. Phillips. I worked as a research viticulturalist. They had this 2,500 acre, like giant vineyard in the Dunnigan Hills, totally unproven area that doesn't really have very few other vineyards. And so there was a lot of like, how do we grow high quality grapes in this region? So a lot of thinning trials and irrigation trials and pruning trials and, you know, tried all kinds of different things, chroming clusters, putting up shade cloth, you name it, and following that through into the wine. Did you get a sense in Lodi that it's more important to someone to be sustainable when they are a family winery and they plan to give that land onto their kids as opposed to sell? Yes. There are a surprising amount of corporate, for lack of a better word, vineyards that the individuals who are responsible for the land are very into sustainability and then and do whatever they can within the corporate structure. I mean, they still have to answer to the bean counters, but here are individuals like me that didn't inherit a farm and wanted to work in ag. They, you know, a lot of those people grew up in rural areas. You know, they had that advantage, but, you know, so they figured out they could get a job as a farm manager as opposed to like farming their family place. But in a lot of those cases, they are more passionate than the guy who's just doing it because that's what, you know, he grew up doing and it was the expectation. So you, you see that, you see, um, I don't, I actually don't think that there's a necessarily a correlation. It's, it's, it's people and their values. So you get to R.H. Phillips and it's almost like kind of a, a toolkit to do all kinds of different trials and experiments in a way yeah. and see what really works in terms of empirical knowledge. Yeah, that was a playground. I mean, I, I ended up being very frustrated and, want, and leaving because, when, you know, I wanted to do, I was like dying to just actually do something. But spending a time of just literally the way, the, the way that the um, owner described it was he's like every car company needs a race car division. 
and you know and you and most of the things you try you know don't work out but a few things get implemented into the production line and that's how he saw it so it was like so literally they i was paid to read journals go out in the vineyard and try stuff and follow it into the wine that was that was one as there for one full year so i started laid out all my trials did them followed it into the wine and then ended up leaving going to napa but it was really fun so in a way i mean I think of you as a small family winery that has a small family farm. Not even really a winery. There's no winery. Right. You do custom crush. You, you know, you you preserve your own vegetables. You do your own jams. You have your own chickens and, and other animals. So I think of you as a small family farm. But when I look at the career, it seems like corporation is always one step removed. Right. You know, you're in Lodi working with a lot of small growers who work with big corporations. You're right. doing a kind of interesting trials and you know race car stuff on a limited level for a big corporation Mm -hmm. then you go and work you know sometimes at arm's length as a consultant in napa for bigger groups not always corporate owned but sometimes some yeah who are looking to you for that guidance you know diageo used to be one of my clients and in that way you've you've been able to carve out the family farm right but it's never that far removed from you know, big ag in a way. I mean, I, I would think. Am you, I wrong you, about that? You can't separate, you know, in, in California, at least, all ag is one arm's length away from big ag. It's just the landscape. And that's, you know, and, and in order, and that's, and, and it's also how one can come up in this business. I mean, I think you can work in corporate ag. You can work in corporate ag without selling your soul. But you have to maintain your vision and understand why you're there. But um, it's what has enabled us to, um, you know, develop and create that small family farm was having a day job. I still, you know, we still have the day job. And we still, after 11 vintages of Mathiasin, we don't draw money from it. We just, we keep, we double it down every year, double it down. And we're doing that so that we can get it to a, critical mass that will enable us to create the sort of vigneron lifestyle that we want that we has been our vision for so long but you know unfortunately if we if i quit the day job too soon then we're never going to get over that hump and so it's just bit by bit you know this year hopefully we're going to be able to put together our own facility and crossing my fingers we're trying to buy a little bit more land we finally finally are in a position where the wine business can buy some the business itself can buy some land through the sale of the wine. And so it's all, you know, so, so, so we're trying to do that and then just maintain the day job working for places that can, that can, you know, pay me as a consultant. And, um, you know, and I think that I, that we're a few years off, but it's actually really close to, to get in that position and saying, okay, we finally can live the vigneron model that, um, hopefully the kids will want to inherit and you know, like Jim Rums, he asked me who the who the um, you know, one of the professors that influenced me. He's one of his lines was there are three ways to get into farming: marry it, inherit it, or win the lottery. But he's actually wrong. We have managed to get into it without any of those three ways. And you know, but it's been so much manipulating, you know, working within the system, and and just trying to take every advantage you can. You know, an example with our Linda Vista Chardonnay. You know, every one of our wines, I could give you this convoluted story of how we pull it together. And the Linda Vista Chardonnay, the vineyards are leased. 
from you know a, an owner who wanted to have a house in the vineyards but didn't want to deal with the vineyards so we sort of solved that problem for us we can lease it at way below what the land value is but it works for her because she's not out of pocket anything she gets a little bit of money and so now we have a vineyard that we can farm like it's our own which is what we want we just don't own it but so we can farm those grapes like they're our own we sell two-thirds of the grapes farniente and chateau monolain each buy a third that gets our that covers the farming costs so then we can take the fruit we press it at domain carneros because they specialize in white wines they have good white wine presses nice big white wine presses and they're affordable then we move the juice to Napa Barrel Care, which is a big barrel storage warehouse, who and barrel ferment it. And so, I mean, that is the most Rube Goldberg, and and the and so far away from like a cave in Burgundy, right? But I mean, we're watching that. Our hands are on that the grapes and the wine every step of the way, but we're making it happen in a way that there is no cave in Burgundy. But that doesn't mean that the that that if you aren't if you aren't creative and take advantage of opportunities that you see, you can make it happen. A lot of people might have built the winery first, kind of that chateau model of okay, we're going to double down, we're going to put it into winery facility, so I don't have to drive around to four different places to get this wine made. Where did you spend the money? Yeah, for so it's definitely definitely our focus has been on the vineyard side. If you know, if you can't fight two fronts at once, and so we, we've said, okay, we're going to deal with continuing custom crush and the headaches and heartaches is when wine gets messed up, someone messes up, does something wrong, you know, pumps our tank into the next tank. Sorry, this has happened to us twice now, but that's just you know the, the way it goes because we're totally focused on on the um, on the vineyard side and, and establishing that sort of beachhead in this battle, and then. Um, and then what you know, and then the next step, you know, if we can Napa is very restrictive land use, and so you need ten acres to build a winery. We have five acres that we, we purchased in two thousand and six was you know amazing that we were able to do that. And what's even more amazing, or at, not equally amazing, I should say, is that I think we're in a position to then buy the ten more acres that's adjacent to us, and we'll do a lot line adjustment. So we'll just have now it'll be a fifteen acre parcel. And that's part of Luna Vista, right? Part of Linda Vista, exactly. And so then, now we'll, we'll have met that requirement so that we can build a winery. So it's just bit by bit. The, um, so the plan is to, is to get the winery, but it's just bit by bit, and the vineyards come first. So let's talk about some of the other wines you make. Okay. How did you get started with the Robola? Went to, moved to Napa, started our company in 2002, January 2002, and one of my partners had a who we started it with already had an established vineyard management company, Al Buckland, and George Vare was one of his accounts. So um, he wanted to sort of back off, and he, so he, part of his I, the idea of starting this business was that he could um, he could just sort of run the business and let me take care of like running around deciding how we're going to prune and water and stuff. So I'm working with the Vare Vineyard. George was one of his accounts. Got to know George Vare. Immediately, we hit it off. And he had just brought in this budwood from Friuli, from Grovner. How did he get to that point? Because that okay. seems unusual. Yeah, that's like totally bizarre, right? And so um, 
So George is this fascinating guy who ran the Henry Wine Group. He start he ran Geyser Peak Winery back in the early seventies. He did all kind of different stuff in the business. Started at first like computerized like skew tracker, um, and so his retirement thing was to was with some partners. He was going to do Luna Winery, and he managed to convince John Consgard to be the first winemaker. He lured him in by saying that John could make his own wine there, and um, John didn't have his facility built yet, which is pretty amazing you think to think of it's like that's the thing it's like none of this stuff is instant right it just takes some time even for someone like john consgar they paid his dues and eventually pulled it together so john was like well if we're going to do calatal varieties mid-90s we're going to um go back to italy and figure out how to do it right and so to john that meant we spending time in friuli because that was one of the benchmarks for pinot grigio to him and so George's like, yeah, like, I'm coming along. You know, this, this whole this is supposed to be fun. This is my the retirement gig. And so they're going winery to winery, visiting, and George is tasting the other wines while they're at it. And he's going, you know, I really love this Rebola Jala stuff. And he's saying, God, I love the people here. He was so kind of burnt out on the wine business on the one hand, but on the other hand, had so had passion for wine and for and the characters, he loved the characters that you meet in the wine business. George just loved them. And on the sales side, on the winemaking side, there's so many great characters. And George has always loved characters. And he always loved Mavericks. And he always loved underdogs. And that's Friuli, basically. There's some of those are Friuli, yeah. Yeah. So he just, so he, so George started going back there. He started making friends and going back there every year. It's kind of a pilgrimage. He just went back there to re- renew and refresh and just you know, eat and, and um, got to know a number of the producers. And, um, and so he's, he finally decided, you know, he's going to, he had his Pinot Grigio vineyard that he planted for Luna. He's going to graft some of it over to Rebola. And he went to Grovener and he had gotten to know and he got a couple sticks of, out of the vineyard, stuck them in his pocket and smuggled them into the U.S. and grafted them into the vineyard. So I was like, what, you know, I'd never heard of Rebola Jala. I'd never heard of Friuli. You know, so we just but okay, let's graft it in the vineyard and let's see. And you know, it took a few years. We you know, you graft it, and then you get a bunch of buds off the plant that you grafted, and you can amplify those out. And pretty soon, we had enough to make wine. I walk in 2004, and Abe Scherner was the first winemaker. Abe was, was that's right around when Abe got also got the job at Luna. Yeah, that was George that got because George back to the Loving Mavericks, George loved Abe, and against the objections of his partners gave Abe the job as winemaker at Luna because he knew Abe was going to really achieve great things. He didn't, you know, he didn't want a, John Cosgrove was stepping back and George wanted someone who was going to do something cool and special and unique. And so. And Abe had been a protege of Kongsgard. Yeah, exactly. Had been a tutor to, to the younger Kongsgard, John right. Kongsgard's son. And he'd also worked with Warren Winizarski, who was somebody yeah. who intersected with your life. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And uh, that was through St. John's. Warren Winiarski is hugely huge supporter of St. John's College. He like is endowed untold millions to St. John's College and just believes in the whole like great books and the thought and discussion, you know. So walk in and there they are with this with Rebola Jala fermenting in a um bin on the skins. And Luna had done some skin fermented some skin fermentations. They've been played around with that a couple times in the late nineties even. But I hadn't been privy to that. And so even though Luna is actually one of my clients at that point too. So that was the first time I'd ever seen a skin fermented white before. It's 2004. 
and rubola in particular, whether it's skin fermented or not, every all most whites when they're skin fermented throw off weird esters, not fruity. That um, and if you're not used to it, you think something's going wrong. But rubola in particular, rubola is not a fruity variety. You think about how minerally and nutty and it is, and so when it's fermenting, that it, it's kind of fecal the esters. And so you think it's reductive, you think it's all screwed up, and it's just actually just rubola, and you just ride it out. And with, just like any wine, when the when the when those estuary stuff fades, then the you know they usually fades within the first few months, and then you get more of what you actually have. And rubola is very much like that. So the first time you make it, you're like, oh, we're doing something totally wrong here. You know what's going on? And so that's what we were thinking. So George's like, we need to go back to Friuli and um, visit some wineries that are making rubola. So you went to Friuli with George? Yeah, yeah, with George and Abe. So you went to 2005, yeah. Who did you visit? We visited Alex Simcic in Slovenia. We visited Ronko Jimenez. I, I'm pronouncing that wrong. Serena there. I always pronounce it wrong. Like yeah. I congenitally pronounce that producer wrong. Yeah, I know. There's <laughs> yeah. some way to... I've heard Bobby Stuckey produce it, pronounce it, and I was like, are we talking about the same place? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But he's very close. I think he makes his wine there or something, but... um. She, she's yeah, it's a part of it. it used to be so there. wonderful. I mean, if you were going to say that's the family that I that's, I mean, they have it figured out. That they're just doing it right with the with the integration of life, winemaking, vineyards, food. It's just it's really cool. But um, Miani, which was really a model for our white wine. Also, he he. It's that one foot. As you can probably tell by this whole story, I like science, and so. Um, I like the tools. I don't. Ha- I don't feel like new world, or I don't feel like a sacred and profane thing. That old world is good, new world's bad, or vice versa, or what have you. And Miani, I think, masterfully incorporates. First off, starting with phenomenal fruit, but in the wine, he's a great farmer. But in the winemaking, he masterfully blends new and old world in the in the wine. So he's, so he's not afraid of some oak. He's not afraid of barrel aging, of ripeness, of intensity, but somehow he manages to the the, the, the tension and carries through, and the wines are so balanced and just perfect, really. You know, and um, do you see yourself and what you're doing there as a cognate in Napa on the other side of that, where he's getting more ripeness in a in a where the wines might be leaner? You're yeah. you're getting uh, less ripeness in a place where they might be richer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, and so, um, but our like our so our white wine is the wine of our wines that is is um, heavily influenced by this sort of taste memory that I had sitting there tasting those wines, and that's a blend, and that's a blend, and our white wine has a fair amount of richness. You know, we use some new oak in it, and it's 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 very it's rich, it's layered, it's and we have other wines that are much leaner and more more about the minerality that wine i you know i love i you know i love white burgundy and i love the um opulence but you know um Aubert, the, the valain ones uh, we, he always um lucky enough to taste he went to our tasting our tasting room was uh, our tasting group and it was awesome because when some of the guys in the tasting group are um at hdv that guy's so they, cool he's Smart guy. great yeah. and he um and he's a and total, those guys those wines are good they're really good. Yeah. The and red's a little lean for me. I don't know if that's uh, well. That's what's so amazing is that the red's actually pretty lean. It's really lean for and for and, and when you think about what the price and the adulation, you go, oh my God, that's actually a, and that's a lean wine. Overlooked Chardonnay though, R- really good. Yeah, nobody talks about it really. So we so he brought a, a, the 
a bottle of Montrachet is his contribution. And so we sat there and we had it and we talked about it. And he made this point that they have natural opulence and you have contrived opulence. Because I, I, I was saying, look, this, is, this wine is insanely opulent, yet impeccably balanced and not heavy. And he said that's because it's natural opulence. So opulence is from the vineyard. Whereas if you, if you use contrived opulence, in other words, from beating the lees, picking really ripe, or, you know, reverse people, RO, whites, or um, oak, what have you, you don't have, you know, it's just a blob in your mouth that needs to be, you need a chaser, right? That's, that's contrived opulence. But so it's... Sometimes I think Montrachet could be a red wine vineyard. You know, yeah. you look at it, you're like, that looks pretty, like that gets a lot of sun. Yeah, exactly. You know, like that kind of opulence. Like, right. You know, I almost drink, don't drink wines like that anymore. But, it, ha- but, but it has enough acid that it's, that it's not heavy. But I, I don't know how you feel, but I tend to drink, I, you know, if you, I'm not saying I'm not, I don't like that or I'm not going to drink that. But if you gave me a choice and you're like a Chevalier or Montrachet, I understand that one is much more expensive than the other. I would probably want to drink the Chevalier more often. I would agree with that, but there there are there are times you know it's still sometimes I mean so 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 it is reaching for that bottle once in a while that is an impact is nice once in a while. Oh no doubt no. I just, and so yeah. you know so but you don't want it all the time, you know. And so like I basically can't stand IPA beers, but once in a while an IPA you know maybe you've gone in skiing and you're sitting in the hotel room nice cold glass of ipa hits the spot and so it's a big rich wine that's how you know but but not a never a heavy wine no interest in there's no special occasion for a heavy wine it's just a heavy wine but an opulent wine that's fun once in a while did you think having an experience doing some brewing in a home brewing situation gave you a different perspective on wine later was there more emphasis on say refreshment or what was no i mean um the vermouth is really fun because it's more like the brewing. But, uh, but the thing about vermouth and the thing about beer brewing that's so cool is that normally with wine, it's you, you, your, your thing is don't, you know, you're trying to do everything in your power to not put any fingerprint on it. It's about the, the transparency, right? And so it's all, you know, like it's like that scene in Spinal Tap where it's like, don't touch the guitar, don't even look at it. You know, it's kind of like that with the wine. I mean, there's, there's incredible pressure to leave it alone and maintain it. And just kind of, you're just trying to not screw it up. And, and so you're trying to do winemaking to not screw it up, yet not change it. So, so that's an incredible razor's edge to walk. Then all of a, now you get into vermouth and you're like, I think it should be a little sweeter. I'm going to add sugar. You know, I like it to be a little fruitier. Let's add some sour cherries, you know, and, and that's like beer brewing. That's fun. I mean, it, it's... You know, it's just a blast, and so um, I mean, that beer brewing—you're just you're cooking, right? So it's um, that that would be the more the parallel. It's the opposite of brewing normally, because you know, unless you're you know into the terroir of the grains, I guess. But yeah, it's not, it's not the mentality. So what but, about that refreshment factor? Because I find some of your wines to be some of the more refreshing I can find from California, just personally. So I have a, my, I have a theory on that, and my and the theory is. When you make your decisions, your winemaking decisions, blending, harvesting, etc., are you mainly spending time in a cold cellar, or are you making me spending time out in the heat? So that's one of my two theories. I, I, mean, I don't think I have a second theory. My wife Jill has a different theory on it, but my what, it's 
you know, so all of our winemaking, I, I work outside. And so this, you know, there's a blend or there's ripeness level or what have you. I'm always going to go for the more refreshing. Whereas if you're in a cold cellar, the heavier, higher alcohol is, is nicer. And, and the other theory that, that my Jill has is, and it's a very valid theory as well, is we, our whole life is garden or farm to table, right? I mean, it's not, I mean, that, that's what we've done the whole time. Right? It's not a fad for us. It's how we live. It's, our, it's like our obsession. It's like if, if, if you don't like talking about that stuff, probably not going to be our friend, basically, because we don't have any other conversations, topics to talk about. And so, you know, so fresh produce, back to Chez Panisse, you know, it's, you know, you, you, it's similar to the winemaking concept. You get out of the way, right? You don't put a lot of technique and try to, and, and obscure the purity of that really good carrot with the etheric sweetness. And so you, so wine that goes with that food is going to be more transparent and more refreshing in a sense of supporting that eating experience as opposed to dominating the eating experience. One of the things that was interesting about the Robola is that you ended up planting it in your own home vineyard. Was did it act differently between the two, and did yeah, you approach very different. it differently? Um, didn't approach it differently per se, but it definitely somewhat differently, just because George liked more ripeness. He always gave me crap that our wines weren't ripe enough. You know, he is of that generation that they were about. You know. It was a good thing to get a little bit more ripeness, and that's what he liked. Also, he was, um, it was, um, our soil is a little loamier, a little, um, and his soil is a little rockier, and his clusters, our, our clusters are just bigger and fatter. We get botrytis. We've never seen botrytis at Bear, same budwood. And so, um, you know, our, the, the Revola at our place is definitely on the leaner side, leaner, more celery celery salt kind of character, less of that um, toasted almond kind of thing that you get more from his. And so it's, you know, Herbola is, a, is it's really a fun grape to grow. It is, it, it picks up the, the like, like next to the garden, they're big, huge jungle vines. And you get just, um, because they get the water from there. And then you get just a little ways away, five, six vines, and they're small and shrunken because they're not getting the water. And so, it, it, the Italian grapes in general, I find to be more sensitive to differences in growing conditions or terroir, whatever you want to call it, than the French grapes as a huge generality. It's, I think the Italian grapes are more sensitive and they're also a lot harder to grow. They're more, they tend to be more disease susceptible. They tend to be, and many times they're harder to get ripe. They're just trickier. I've, and, I've heard it said that the vineyard husbandry of the monks in France really was the great benefit of, of the French varieties. Like just the years over time of being like getting it right, you know. Let's pick this one and put and replant that one. Well, I, I think that's got to be a huge part of it, and I also think that they. Um, and, and, and I have no idea. This is my theory, okay? That they, it's just a harder place to grow grapes in France. Italy has a nicer climate, and so the Italians is my. It could possibly deal with a grape that's trickier horticulturally, and in France, like Cabernet Sauvignon, right? Is the it's bulletproof so it's no wonder that it's taken over the world it's so easy to grow chardonnay is actually pretty easy to grow and pinot are actually they're not bad they're not as easy as cab but but they have the benefit of being shorter ripening though then you get like nebbiolo it's it's a nightmare we have that at one client and um it 
it, it's so disease susceptible. It sunburns. It, it's the it doesn't want to produce. It produces erratically. So one vine is too much, but then the next vine doesn't have hardly anything. It's long and gangly, big thick tendrils that hang onto the wires, so it makes it hard to prune. So it's it's just a crap variety horticulturally. And I don't think those would have made it in France because in, in France they had those mixed vineyards. So a lot of the early, it was like these these grapes, you know, it's all getting thrown together. And so it was more about the horticultural aspects than it was about the flavor because the, they had these hugely mixed vineyards for so long. When you worked with Robola in your own vineyard, you decided to train it to the lyre system. Where did that come from? Because that oh, wasn't the Vare thing. No, the lyre was already there. Oh, oh okay. I, I wouldn't have chosen the lyre. So you grafted over, yeah, and then that's what you had, yeah. And what does that bring? It really reduces the vigor because the, the, you're asking that vine to fill a big space, and that's the whole point of the liar system. Is there's there are two main philosophies: the big vine theory and the tight spacing theory. So you deal with, deal with high vigor. One theory is pack the vines really closely together and let them compete. The other theory is spread them out and let them let them increase in size until they come you know come into balance. The liar is the big vine theory. You know, I think permutations, and there are some we said for both of them, but I'm not a huge fan of the liar. It's tough to do the, um, I think, and, and, and I would do the liar differently. That, that We've learned a lot. You know, the liar was popular for about 10 years, and we've kind of learned a lot. And um, you don't see it going in that much anymore in that, in that configuration. But, you know, that's what I got, so. One of the things that's interesting about the variable is that multiple winemakers work with that fruit. Do you see differences between what you're doing and what, say, Forlorn Hope wants to do with that fruit oh, and yeah. what you're doing and what Abe wants to do with that fruit? I mean, and Abe's worked with the Vare Vineyard label. So, you know, how did you each approach it differently and what was what was, what was was that like? So that's um, the, um, we were talking about earlier about the stamp of the winemaker, the personality of the winemaker and the vision. I mean, it's it's so interesting to me. We do a taste, every year we, we have a little, tradition of doing a potluck and we um and we all we all bring our rebolas and we all take turns getting up and um tasting everyone and talking about it and it's you know kind of pretty technical like i you know we macerated it for x number of days at x temperature and just kind of like get into it like winemaker and winemaker for what we all did with the rebola and how what we think of it and everyone tastes it and um it's it's and then we have a big potluck so and everyone brings like cool wines from friedley and stuff there's always multiple vintages of grobner it's a awesome time and um what we always find is the wines are every single wine is different but then the terroir carries through and that's you see that in burgundy where you know you have two producers right next to each other you know one's ripe and voluptuous one's closed and needs like 10 years and then and maybe there one guy's loud and bombastic and the other guy is you know clenched down and but as a personality, as type, personality type, reflected. Yeah, exactly. And with the Rebola, I, I I can't really psychoanalyze the Rebola producers, but people have different visions, and and so you see that thread of terroir carry through, and then but you also see this huge difference. You know, the, the rime skin fermented Rebola versus our whole cluster pressed Rebola. You can you still I feel that there are flavors that you still pick through that you say, wow, that tastes like the Vera Vineyard, but then obviously the, the wines are like night and day. Because sometimes people say, well, orange wines, they don't reflect terroir. Would you say you can still get the vineyard if you know it well enough? I, 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 yes, and I also think that there's orange wines and then there's orange wines. You know, because um, orange wines, it's, 
I, I think you have to be really careful taking defining a wine style by a technique. And, you know, so they're saying a wine is oaky. Well, you know, an oaky wine is often also overripe and overextracted because the type of person that's going to over-oak it is probably going to pick it too ripe and over-extract it. So is it the oakiness? Uh, so uh, It's you know, a chain of events. I can think of all kinds of stuff like that, you know, like natural wines and the carbonic thing, you know, that you just see these things come together. So you say, you, how do you assign, you know, is it the, you know, cause versus and there's correlation and causality. And so uh, orange wines are often see a whole lot of oxygen and, and uh, that I think, and I, and I, I think the oxygen wipes out the terroir more than the skin fermenting of the grapes when it's a case where the terroir is wiped out. So, whereas bizarrely long macerations or, you know, or it'll be carbonic and like a carbonically macerated white. I mean, so what are you tasting? There's you're layering. What about that idea of blend versus single varietal? Because you make both. Right. And well, I had a really great time tasting. Etienne Monti came and tasted this last summer. Wait, sorry, I'm going to show him the white wine. I think he's going to go nuts for the white wine. And big silence. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm kind of going, huh, what's, where's he? I don't know, you know. And I think, and he, I think he was kind of grappling on that one. And finally he says, he says, you know, you've created something here. And he goes, I've never created anything with wine in my life. He goes, I can't create anything. All I can do is reveal. That's my job. And, and he, he's, you know, and, he, and and so I wasn't really sure, I, you know, where he, um, how he feels about that. But um, it was definitely a distinction. And I thought that's really interesting. And it's, and it's, but it, and so it helped, it helped, it kind of brought in focus what we're doing because that's exactly what's going on is that we don't put the vineyard on the, we, it's two different vineyards for the white wine and our red wine, our red blend is four different vineyards and we don't put the vineyards on there. And the reason why is it's not relevant with those wines. They're blended wines, they're creations, they're crafted wines. And, and, um, and I have a preconceived notion in my mind that I try to achieve with those, with those blends. And so I'm, you know, the quality of the vineyard is important, but not the character of the vineyard. And it, you know, this is, it's like the vermouth or the beer in that sense that I'm, that I'm putting a, I'm, 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 that's my vision of, of a, of a wine. Whereas a single vineyard wine, if you're going to put the single vineyard on there, you have a sort of a moral obligation really to reflect that vineyard. Otherwise it's just cheesy marketing, right? And so you, so, so there's a lot of res- responsibility there to make a wine. And yet and you, it doesn't mean you're going to make them super, in a formulaic way so that these two different vineyards are made in the exact same way because I try to work with what is the, what's the nature of the vineyard. So our two different Chardonnays, the Linda Vista Chardonnay, we do uh, eight months. It's, they're both neutral oak, but, the, but it's eight months in neutral oak with um, no ML. Use, I use SO2 to block ML. I don't really stir it, but um, bottle it fil- filtered because I feel that the, that the character of that vineyard is the bright, fresh character. And so that's the character I want to preserve and emphasize. The Michael Mara Chardonnay, I leave it 18 months in barrel. And the majority of that time, it's not topped or, or sulfured. We don't stir that either. And it's neutral oak, but on that, that vineyard doesn't, it's, I'm, I'm trying to 
let the bright fresh character go away and more the deeper more sort of core aspects of chardonnay to be able to sort of rise to the surface and because i think that's what that vineyard is about and so there, so there's a judgment that i'm making what i think the character of the vineyard is so i'm so these two different vineyards they're very different winemaking techniques but i'm doing my best to showcase and allow the to this expression to take place that sort of seems to be what the nature of that vineyard is. What about rosé? What's your approach to it? Yours is particularly good. So rosé is is back to the refreshing. It's it's the number one consideration and number two, number three consideration is how is this is this going to be refreshing um, as the first drink that we have getting home from work on a hot day and so that's really what i'm going for with the rosé um so we pick it early i'm trying to keep the alcohol low because i want to drink a lot of it all of the wines it's like how are we going to drink them right and so and if i want to drink rosé i want to drink a lot of it i cannot stand a hot rosé or i can't stand getting drunk with rosé that's like kills my whole experience so you know we try to pick it early lots of acidity low alcohol more emphasis of the on the savory sort of aspects um you know i mean fruit is nice but not tutti fruity just, but clean is really important so it's a very it's just a light quick whole cluster press we do stainless steel barrels i like the barrels because with that acid level i do think there's a benefit to being on the lees but we don't want the oxygen we don't want to lose any freshness and so it's we use stainless steel barrels uh, and um block ml and just cap them off there's no stirring or anything like that just let it sit there and then um um sterile filter it and bottle it if a great rosé were a red wine would that be a heavy red wine or would that be a lighter red wine because sometimes i feel like people bleed off the juice of a big right and that's one of the problems with signe rosé it's a huge problem with signe rosé is it's back to my comment about the aromatic component of wine balance that you can bleed off a heavy red wine and you can adjust the acid, you can adjust the alcohol, you can adjust everything chemically. And it's not refreshing because it's ripe fruits. And you want slightly, I think, underripe fruits for a rosé to be refreshing. You know, it's a crisp, barely ripe apple or hard pear when it's cold. When it, Sorry, when it's hot outside. It's sometimes a tart strawberry can be better than a rich, ripe strawberry when it's 100 degrees outside. And, and so that's kind of the mentality of the rosé. So if you're gonna if, if the rosé is saigné, then it needs to be grapes that uh, that still have that have a um, that aren't ultra ripe. But in our case, we could, there's no way we could do it saigné. We picked the rosé at like nineteen point eight bricks. So, what's the change been like on the ground in terms of Napa? You know, it used to just be you, Abe, Mavericks. You know, it's almost like Sundance Kid and and you know, yeah, you know what I mean, I Sundance ability. Yeah, Abe and I when we when in the early days. He was for for sort of mavericks in California that were new, not you know like it was Kathy Corison who was hugely inspirational to us, but we never we didn't feel like she was a peer because she was already established. She was fighting the good fight. I mean, thank God, but she already she she had managed to get established and get her thing going already. And so for people getting going, I didn't know of anyone else at you know initially other than Abe. And so we would band together. We, we came, we would do tastings together. We did a thing like here in New York at Union Square Wines in like probably 06 or something like that. Our wines are totally different. And we, so it was like, you know, so it was great. And then we started finding out about 
other things that are going on in California. Like I didn't, like Arnott Roberts, we didn't know that they existed. They were doing their thing over there. I didn't know that Brock Sellers, what they were, that they existed. And so over time we sort of found each other and it's like, hey, you're, do, you're dealing with the same stuff we're dealing with. And so it's instant bond. And so that's, we've, it's turned into a great community. But those, those early days were um, like, you know, pretty wild. Like it was like, you know, pretty lonely in the sense of, um, are we gonna be able to, I mean, everyone is saying that, that this can't work. And we're sure feeling like they might be right, you know? It was, it was, um, it was a challenge. Steve Mathiason, he's made a modern Eden in the middle of one of the most famous wine regions in the world. And he's made it work. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. Steve Messiason of the Messiason Winery. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.